Ephesians 3, 1 through 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And he opens, he says, when I think of all this, uh, notice the note that I left for you on the bottom there. When he says, when I think of all of this, he's referring back to chapter 2 and probably 1 as well, but at least recently in chapter 2, he's talked about ideas like, now we have peace with God, we who didn't used to have peace with God, and we are members of God's family, we who weren't before, and we are joined together in Christ. So that's what he means when he says, when I think about all of this, notice the theme there, togetherness with God and people, right? He says, when I think of all of this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> this is a crazy sentence to translate. We don't know how to do it. Just look at five different English versions, and it's like, there, it's always a sentence that's incomplete. I don't know how to do it. That's why the New Living puts an ellipses there. They're like, uh... It's about Paul for sure. (laughs) Other than that, we don't know. But let's continue. Verse 2. Assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. Okay. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus. We believe that John is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And Paul's writing and he's saying, and, and, and so... He's writing, it appears to be, to you Gentiles. You non-Jewish people are part of us now, and that's cray. That's insane. And because of that, when I think about all this, I remember this special gift God gave, I'm interested to give to you. Verse 3. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed this mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, and remember when you hear grace, think always gift, yeah? Not just a theological term, but a genuine, it's a gift, this gift that he's given. By God's gift and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, that's a big statement for a guy like Paul to say. He was a prominent Jewish leader and teacher. He says, now, I'm the least deserving of all God's people. He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Okay. This is also the word of the Lord. We can come boldly into God's presence. 
We're united together, Jew and non-Jew. I suspect that in our world, we've been hearing things like that for a while, especially if you've dabbled in church life. Um, So we have to work extra hard to sort of get into what this meant to Paul, what it meant for him to be saying these kinds of things. And that's what I want to do here. So he is talking about something God revealed to him. He didn't say, I, I discovered this, you know. I wasn't reading the ancient texts in the old stump that Yoda predicts. I didn't discover it through my study. It was God gave it to me. He revealed this thing to me. And that's where I think we start to get into this sense of epiphany. A perspective changes. It's a very good perspective God gives him, but it's also very unusual. All right. This is a little quip that I picked up somewhere along the way, and I want to start here. Two men looked out from prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. What is the gist of this? What's a takeaway? One saw hope. One saw hope, and one saw junk, garbage. What's different about the two? It's just their perspective, it's not their situation. Both are locked up. Both are behind bars. Both are prisoners. Both are in a dissatisfying spot. One is able to look out from that horrible spot and see something beautiful and good, and one is not. It's very interesting, isn't it? Perspectives have a big, big, big influence on how we live and how we process the information we're getting, isn't it? Christopher Wren. Sir Christopher Wren was the guy in charge of building St. Paul's Cathedral, and there's a little construction story about him. Uh, As he comes one day to the construction site to see how the work is progressing, he comes to the first worker and he says, what are you doing? And the worker says, well, I'm cutting this stone to a certain size and shape. True? Yes. Goes to the second man and asks him, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm earning a living at my work. And goes to the third man and he asks him the same. And the dude pauses for a moment. He straightens up and he says, well, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. All three are shaping stones. They're all in the same situation. One says, I'm just cutting stones to fit. One says, I'm trying to feed my family. And one says, I'm part of a massive construction project led by Sir Christopher Wren. Perspectives. Tomorrow marks the beginning of Epiphany, and it forces a change in perspective if we're paying attention to it carefully. It forces us to change how we think about other people, and it forces us to change how we think about our life in the church. You see it when Paul says what he does about the church in this text, don't you? This is the place where God's wisdom is revealed. That's a big deal. He doesn't say, this is the place where I go get fed. This is the place where I go and participate in the building of something glorious and eternal. It's It's an amazing way that he looks at it. So, Epiphany, God revealing something we didn't know. The first symbolic story in Christian history that we look at and say, whoa, 
is actually the three wise men. Now, what's interesting there is that the focus on this story is about the myrrh and the frankincense and the gold that's brought to Jesus. This was my upbringing. My focus as I listen to the story about the three wise men is like, whoa, miracle star. They come from Orient land, you know, and they come following the star and it's an amazing thing. And then they rightly recognize the king and they give generously to him. That's kind of the big thing. Look at how great these wise men are. I don't think that's false. Historically, we've actually not looked at the greatness of the wise men, but we've looked at what God is doing in this scenario. And what God is doing in this scenario is going to a pagan group of people who do not follow Jewish law, probably don't even know what's going on. They're not part of the land. They're not born under Abraham. They're not in any kind of way the good ones. And God reveals his glory to them through visions, the star, Jesus himself. So the whole picture that we see is this is the moment where God manifestly shows himself to the non-Jewish people. And that's a big freaking deal. It's a huge deal. That's the deeper sense to that story, and I think that's the deep sense to Epiphany. What are we supposed to see, though? What specifically in this Epiphany moment, right? This big, big reveal. It's like one of those, we watch AFV all the time. You know, they have those, you know what I'm talking about, the funny video show, and they have those reveal cannons and everybody shoots themselves in the face with them. It's the big reveal. He's got like one of those gender reveal, sorry. (laughs) Shut up, Ben. Just get on with the Bible. Okay. Why is it an epiphany? What, What are we supposed to see? I think that we're supposed to see that God truly and deeply loves all people. You say, oh, really? Okay, big deal. We've been talking about that in the church for quite some time. I used to actually sing a song when I was a little kid. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. What am I taking away from that? God loves everybody. Well, really, nobody threw any verses on about adults of the world. Why? Because when you're adults, you're not innocent anymore. So it's easy to love all the little children. But once you're going to bomb my country, I have to kill you to make this country a better spot. Or if you're going to steal from me, I have to hate you because you're a threat to me. If you're going to actually not do what God wants, then you are not of me and you're not as valuable as me and I can condescend you and ignore you and just let you die where you're supposed to be, which is away from the goodness. That's really interesting. So we have this sense for sure that God loves everybody, but I don't know that that actually trickles into the fiber of our being to where it influences the way we think and feel about everybody around us. And that was the epiphany for Paul. It is impossible for us Western white folks to sit in a spot where we understand what we would feel as Jewish people toward non-Jewish people, especially Paul. He had been, if you know Paul's story at all, he is a chief, he's a chief leader, chief teacher, and his major goal is to protect the people of God from heresies and people who don't worship correctly and so forth. 
which is basically protecting them from non-Jewish people. And in his day, the Christian world, the Christian church is forming, and he sees them as a huge threat. Now he's forced to think totally different. That's why the revelation of God to the Gentile magi, or the wise men, is so insane. The big reveal is that God has always intended to draw all of the people into his love. So two questions for us today. How would we like, or how would we think about others differently if we believe deeply that God was intending to reveal his love to them? How do you think about another human being if you say of that person, that is an infinitely valuable miracle whom God is intending to reveal his love to? That changes the way you think about a person. The second question is, how would we think about our life in the church differently? In the old world, contempt was the name of the game, was just how it worked. The Jews were unimpressed with people who they felt were worthless in the sight of God. In many cases, they actually excluded them and hated them. We see this sort of spiteful attitude in the Old Testament. Often we wonder, you've run into this in the Old Testament. I know you have. And it's, if you've read the Old Testament at all, you've run into these moments where you're like, geez, uh, yeah, praying to God to utterly destroy all of your enemies? Praying to God to smash their babies' heads against the stones and kill all of their livestock and women and men and children? You're, what? Like, how is that the heart of the people of God? You want Isaiah 60. We read the first six verses. Here's verse 12. For nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid to waste. Isaiah 45. The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, tall of stature, they shall come over and be yours. They will follow you. They will come over in chains and bow to you. All through the Old Testament, you can pick up... Let me be a little bit more careful there. As you get into the Old Testament and come up closer to the time of the prophets and then the end of the Old Testament... We move from that opening being a blessing to the nations. By the time we get into the period of Jewish life right before Jesus, there's no writing related to Genesis 12 in being a blessing to the nations. It's all become, we can't wait until God comes and fulfills his promise, which is destroying all of these other people. And then there's all various ways to describe that. On and on it goes. People living incorrectly will be destroyed, plundered, and made to be the slaves of God's people. And this wasn't bad thinking. This wasn't particularly cruel. They were not particularly weird or unique. This is how it works. <laughs> uh, we've, we, we today are obsessed with ways to exclude, and that obsession is ancient. <laughs> it's deep within us from a long time ago. The Greeks... The Gentiles, for example, hated those that they called barbarians. Uh, The Roman philosopher from that day, Celsus, he hated the Christians. While attacking them, he says, the barbarians may have a gift for discovering truth, but it takes a Greek to understand it. Um, For them, barbarians were everybody who wasn't Greek. (laughs) And that's just the way it worked. The barriers between nations were complete. 
They were well fortified. And then within the nations, there were other barriers, men and women, you know, different ethnic barriers and hierarchies, who's better and who's worse. And then what you own, where you're at, slave, free, homeowner, renter, you know, people have different value within the nations, which are also divided from others. Nobody had ever dreamed that their God or any God would have great gifts and privileges for all people. Their God, any God, is the God of my nation, the God of this region, the God of my home or my ancestors. It's just the way everybody was thinking. So the epiphany for Paul is an epiphany for the whole world, which is this God of of the Jewish people. A, the Jewish people misinterpreted what he's about, or perhaps the better thing to say is God didn't actually reveal it to them earlier. Isn't that what Paul says? He's not, Paul's not saying, oh, we were so stupid. He's just like, God didn't tell us until Jesus came. But in Jesus, we saw something nobody expected. And that was love for Jew and non-Jew alike, which means love for all human. That's a big deal. God has always intended to bring the whole world into his love. Yes, even the nations that have historically rejected God and despised his people. I mean, isn't that basically all the nations that aren't Jewish? They're into their own gods. Some of them actually hate the Jews and want to kill them, right? The good news is that God has always intended to bring the whole world into his love. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians 3, and let's remember... How does this epiphany start to change the way that I think about other people and about my life in the church? For Paul, it changed everything. And he moves from a dude who's safe, who's comfortable, who has, I assume, pretty good income as a prominent Jewish leader, sought-after teacher. He's respected, and he moves from that because he believes the good news And it influences the way he sees other people. And it influences his way of relating to the church. And as a result, he experiences tremendous suffering. Which seems weird, according to the way that the world would say, if you're going to serve God and you're going to love him, then by golly, things are going to be great. So we have to think about suffering a little bit, and that's where we'll land it. But right now, come with me to Ephesians 3. We've already read it. Something about the way Jesus, in, in his engagement with Paul, moves Paul from a chief enforcer of those barriers that divide to a chief destroyer of those barriers that divide. That's one thing I want us to all sort of think about. Nobody, I, I suspect nobody in this room is just out there just fighting and warring against another group of people harshly. But I think we maybe do inside ourselves sometimes in a very instinctive way. We actually have barriers toward other kinds of people that are just built into us. Paul seemed to be very interested in dissolving all of those barriers. I think we underestimate, if we read these first five verses again, Paul, he says, I think about all this. Verse 2, this is a special responsibility of extending this gift to you Gentiles. 
Verse 3, God reveals his mysterious plan to me. And verse 5, I want to pay close attention to, he didn't reveal it to previous generations. Why didn't he? We could talk all year about why he didn't reveal it to previous generations. But he didn't. So whatever the world looked like before Jesus, even with our sacred and holy scriptures, those did not contain this truth. Okay? That's important. Does that mean they're bad? No. Shouldn't be trusted? Not at all. It's the holy word of God. This is the word of the Lord, we say when we read the Bible. So it's good, but there is a progression to it. It, it doesn't talk about this the way that Jesus lived it. This is new. I've said this before. Therefore, Jesus becomes the lens through which we have to interpret the Old Testament. Verse 6, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both Jews and non-Jews means all people are equal before God. Peter, is it Peter who says God does not show, or James? Elsewhere in the New Testament, how about that? <laughs> Elsewhere in the New Testament, we hear this language of God does not show favoritism. Um, there is no longer Jew or Gentile in the lens of the good news. We see that in Galatians. In another place, there's barbarians and Scythians and Jews and Greeks, but in the gospel, all are one. God says that both are part of the same body, and this is totally not what anybody was expecting. Now, if you're like me, we start to talk about this universal love of God indiscriminately given to all human beings. And we might start to say, Jesus, are you moving us toward cosmic universalism here? Not really. Pay attention carefully. Verse 6, I think, helps us see that Paul is not arguing for some kind of cosmic universalism. He's not saying the good news is that you don't, that what you think and what you do doesn't matter because God loves you. And I, I actually hear that message a lot today. But I don't think that that's correct. Um, because God's intent through his love is to make you alive. And there's a difference between life and death. Yeah? So it's not because God loves you, then just kind of freely go about whatever you want to do. It's not that. He says what? He says, for those who believe. Both are part of the same body. Both are part of the promise, the blessings that belong to Christ Jesus. This is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally. Okay? Oh, good, we might say. Uh, but hang on. You might say, okay, good, I believe. But I think we have to be careful. This is also not an economic exchange. So this is where I, I was framed up this way as a kid. It was this sense of once you have done the, the act of believing in the good news, then you've passed the test and made yourself worthy for God. Right? 
That's often the way we interpret this kind of passage. For those who believe, okay, and it's like, oh, okay, I, I believe today, 3 o'clock, 3.12 p.m., I believed. Okay, good, I've done what I need to do. I'm now worthy for God. But I don't think it's that way at all. Um, the rest of the scriptures don't hold that sort of sense of you thought the right way and now God can love you. Right? It kind of goes against even this passage. It is real, true life and health and eternal renewal that is offered to all indiscriminately and without favoritism. But maybe some will say, no, thank you. But none can say, God didn't love me or didn't help me or didn't show himself to me. I think that's in Romans 1. This is a statement that forces you to ask a question that Jesus often asks of other people. What do you really want? The idea is almost like we're in a place of death and dying, and God puts a source of life for all. Yeah? It's not, it's not I believed and I'm done believing now, so I get that life. It's, will I live in that source of life in this moment and for the rest of this morning and today? It's always available. It's always there. So for those who believe... You're, you're actually drinking that living water. It's making you alive. It's not that you became worthy of it. It's you are worthy of it, which is why God gave it to you. But you actually drink of it. You partake in it or participate in it. God deeply and truly loves all of his people. And he is intended to include them all from the beginning. Seven, by God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling Gentiles. That's an amazing statement, because I have by and large thought of church life as obligatory. I have to do this so I can be one of the good ones so that God will like me. Or even worse, I have to do this because otherwise my community won't accept me. So I'll, I'll, I'll serve. Paul's whole language is, this is the best gift I've ever been given. I actually get to serve human beings this way. And nothing has made me more alive than that. That's a huge, huge perspective shift, isn't it? You saw in the opening of the letter another example of his perspective shift when he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. Paul's on house arrest when he's writing this. He's a prisoner of Rome, right? And that means that he, he's allowed, he's in his own rented place, but he's not allowed to leave it. He's literally shackled to a Roman soldier. He gets guests in and out during the day, but he's a prisoner of Rome. He's not allowed to leave. And his perspective is, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. It's a totally different mindset change. He's alive and well while he's being brutally mistreated, unjustly prosecuted, <laughs> oppressed, and probably treated with some racism. 
So he's being treated with racist ideas, pagan beliefs, an unjust system, locked up unfairly, and he's like, this is a gift to be with Christ and to be here with these people because these people are infinite miracles. Who, your jailer? Yeah, my jailer. Didn't he beat you up the other? Yeah, he beat the crap out of me. But he is somebody that God deeply loves, and I get to be here with him, and so every time he beats me, I get to forgive him. What a gift. I get to show what kind of love God has. And every time he talks about me, I can hear him talking with the other guards about how stupid I am because I'm a Jew. I get to pray for him and say, God, would you forgive them? They don't even know what they're doing. His whole perspective is totally different. He can literally say, all the stuff I used to love and chase, I count as worthless compared to the unsurpassing riches of being able to live with Jesus and for his people, which are all people. The epiphany has showed me. We believe a lie, I think, when we believe the lie that says full, vibrant, rich lives filled with love and friendship and deeply satisfying goodness, that's for the ultra-wealthy and the ultra-healthy. That's for the good people. I think that's a deception. God doesn't see good or bad people in the way you and I have been taught to. He sees his own created human beings, every single one of them, one of us, so important to him, the most, the pinnacle of all of his creation. And Paul can see himself through the lens of that truth and say, I'm not the best person. I'm not the most educated. I'm not the wisest among He maybe is at a certain level. But his whole perspective is, I'm the least deserving of anybody, you know, as he's sitting there imprisoned by a Roman imperial guard. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the least. I don't deserve this. Which says what to us? Oh, if, if the love of God has made you feel wonderful about yourself and how good you are and helped you to hate other people or just ignore them, I don't think that's actually the love of God. <laughs> I think the love of God melts our hearts. I think it humbles us. I think we see it in Paul. I want to be a church with you guys, a church that has melty hearts, not hardened and calloused hearts that maybe help me stay safer because I can protect myself from pain. Because if you melt, if your heart is soft and melty, it's vulnerable, isn't it? It can be hurt worse. But there's something about Paul's willingness to be hurt that way that it's just profound. God's love humbles us when we really see it. It melts our hearts for others. Let's be a melty heart kind of church. Verse 10, God's purpose was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, verse 11. We belong to the church. So we are part of a plan. And that Greek word in verse 10, our text translated rich variety, it means um, multifaceted or multicolored. His wisdom is multicolored, multifaceted. It's not the Jewish way of life is the wise way, right? There's a million colors, but Israeli blue is the right way to live. It's not that. It's God's wisdom can be applied into any person's life, nation, context, way of thinking. And I believe the idea is that that wisdom will transform people into the likeness of Christ. 
which does not mean into the likeness of middle-class Americans. Yeah? It's so it, we don't need people to come and like what we're doing or do what we're doing or wear what we're wearing or talk the same way to love and welcome and build up and give ourselves to. Yeah? It's an amazing thought. It's a rich, multifaceted wisdom that gets into the absolute the fiber of every single kind of person's being. Why? 12. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Because Christ demonstrated that you don't have to hit level five before you're lovable, that you're already lovable as you stand right now, God's holy and beloved, I no longer have to wonder if I'm good enough for God. Which is how you would approach a king sheepishly, yes? Have I done enough? Have I paid enough? Have I... He says, no, 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 that's done. He's your Abba, your father. He loves you. We see this in Jesus. This is what we see revealed. So we can be bold. Folks who previously might have feared that the bad guys in Rome are winning against God's only true people are now invited to see Paul's changed perspective. They see Paul locked up, and they see mud, don't they? This is crap. Paul sees himself locked up. He says, this, I see stars, baby. There's a, lot to, there's a lot to do here. They see Paul as a prisoner of Rome. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. This suffering I'm experiencing, that's a major win. That's not a loss. Total reframing. And how freeing is that? Your, your experience of life in the good and joyful way is not dependent on the perfect circumstance around you. It's dependent on something eternal and of God. Clearly, I think the epiphany of God in Christ has changed the way that Paul thinks about other people, and it changes the way that he lives with and thinks about the church. I want to sum it up with a few simmered down points. First, Paul sees himself as a transmitter. He's received something not to protect and hold for himself. He transmits it to others. I think it's one of the greatest challenges of Christianity to realize that what we have from God is infinitely precious, and it's our responsibility to pass it to our neighbor. It's one of the great warnings of the Christian life that if we don't, we lose it. I think in 2020, we can be a protective people and make sure that we can have God's gift the way we want it on our terms. Or we can be a serving people, making sure that we give God's gift to those who haven't received it yet. And I'll add for our context, to those who are not yet here, giving it. Second, Paul saw himself as having the dignity of service. He thought of his service not as a tiresome duty, but as a privilege, a benefit, a gift. William Barclay is a commenter on this passage. He says, It is often astonishingly difficult to persuade people to serve in the church, to teach for God, to sing for God, to administer ad fairs for God, to speak for God, to visit those in poverty and distress for God, to give of our time and our talent and our substance for God, should not be counted a duty to be dragged or coaxed out of us. It is a privilege we would be glad to accept. And I love how Barclay says, 
for God. I have so often thought about my role as coming here to preach for you or to teach for myself. Ben, what are you doing? I'm earning a living for my family. Ben, what are you doing? I'm crafting a speech, right? This all needs to get reframed for I'm here serving God. Matt is singing for God. Jody is loving the children for God. Certainly for their sake, but for God. We're serving the Lord. When you give of tithes, you don't give to me or to Colossae East or to Colossae at all. You're giving to God. And when you give to God, it comes then with this wonderful benefit of I don't need anything else back. I don't actually need to feel satisfied about what happened here or where this I'm giving to God. It's an amazing thing. Third, Paul saw himself as a sufferer for Christ. This is the one I want to land it on. He was never expecting church life or the responsibilities of serving other people to be an easy thing. In my experience, it is the hardest possible thing to do. And I think that's why we kind of find ourselves often in the church atmospheres we do. We, we, we end up in the scenario where Satan has somehow made us feel like being part of church in a faithful way is actually a costly burden. So I'll put up with it as best as I can, but man, I've got other stuff that's more important that I have to balance. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 this is life. This is the source of life. God is coming to unite with his creation. He's coming to unite with us. This is the place where we do that first. We take it out to the world. But it costs us and it makes us suffer. Why? Why does being faithfully involved with church life, serving one another, serving neighbor, serving God, why is that often so painful? Satan wants us to say, because the leadership's not doing something correctly. Or because you're not saying it the right way. Or somebody else is to blame. And Paul would say, no, it's painful because we've been malformed by the world. And so to be reformed by God is painful. It takes, it takes a significant level of suffering. Here's, a, here's an analogy that I think really helps square this up. Um, in Christmas Eve, we talked about God coming to be together with us. Togetherness. Love seeks togetherness. I believe that God would come and incarnate as Jesus even if there was no sin in the world. All right? We're often taught, well, he just sent Jesus to die for your sins. Sure. He also came as Jesus to unite with us. That was part of his intended plan from the get-go. I think that that uniting with God in that fuller way, him in the flesh, would be a very wonderful experience. But sin is what makes that a very painful experience. Why? Because sin has taught us to think that, that the things, uh, to think deadly things are living things. Sin teaches us that. So we actually believe that if I have this kind of time frame in my schedule and amount of relaxation and money and this and that, then I'm alive. That's sinfulness because it's all orienting our life around having things and being in the right spot. So to be removed from that, it's like I have to give up my obsession with cash. I have to, that hurts. I, I have to be misunderstood by people. That hurts. All right. Suffering is part of God renewing us. My friend bombed down Mount Tabor. We're on Mount Tabor right now. Back here, there's a big, huge hill. Your longboarders love to bomb down that thing. He's bombing it. 
he bails and has to go to the ER. It is a bad, bad, you know, those guys get going fast on those things. Totally shredded, his whole leg just ripped. They have to cut his pants off and then you're like, okay, what do you, what do you need? Well, I've got a huge rash cut on my leg. What do I want? I want pain meds. I want some kind of solution. I want to feel better. What does the doctor do? The doctor comes out, legs all bloody, and he comes out with a big one of those file brushes you use to scrape metal filings out of a metal file. A big stainless steel wire brush. What is the dude thinking? No way. Doc's like, this is going to hurt. Bite down on this. And then... And he just rakes that open wound. And you're like, what in the world? Well, you got to sort of flesh that out a little bit and think through it. Is the doctor doing harm to the guy? No. The doctor could pretty easily give him some painkillers, put a little salve on it, throw a Band-Aid on it or gauze or whatever, and it would feel better almost immediately. Then the leg could even heal by scabbing over those chunks of asphalt and bacteria and dirt that had gotten embedded deep into the leg. And for a while, it'd be like, okay, I feel better. I'm walking okay. But then what happens? That stuff gets infected. It turns gangrene and the dude dies. So a doctor who's loving is going to say, this is going to hurt real bad, but we have got to get that darkness out of you so that you can flourish and live forever. Okay. So when it feels like the suffering that is inherent with church life means that the church is bad for you, it's just the opposite. Living together in this community is actually taking infection out of us. It's removing chunks of asphalt and bacteria and dirt from our legs that shouldn't be there and building us up to be strong enough to walk forever with one another in God. So Paul reframes suffering for us. And I think if we can't get that into our heads, then we're actually governed by suffering or by pleasure, however you want to look at it. We make decisions on whether to serve others based on whether it will make us feel better or not, if it will give us what we think we need, okay? Paul says, don't think that way. Remember, Jesus suffered the worst of all, and he rose up again. Resurrection is where we're headed. Let the suffering be something that teaches you, not something that just gives you something to avoid for all of your life. And that's where we'll leave it for today. Suffering is reframed. How we understand other people is totally reframed. How we understand our life in the church is totally reframed. A different perspective. We are prisoners of Christ. Bond servants, not of one another or the world, but of Jesus. And as we live with him, he's making us new and he's making our world new and our neighbors alive. It's beautiful. That's a good thing to be a part of. That's an amazing gift. So let's be a people that has melty hearts and gives it to other people, okay?